if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. I, you wouldn't know this, but this is the second attempt at doing this particular episode, which luckily I didn't spend any time. I noticed my mic wasn't lit. You know, many of you may be lit, but my mic wasn't lit, and that means it was recording through the, and it probably would have been fine, but I didn't go with it. This is Jim the Keys bartender coming from Key Largo. It's rainy. We are, we've had rain almost every day, and uh, which is a good thing for down here, for maybe not necessarily for the visitors, but for us, for our gardens, which we appreciate the, the rain. We have usually run a deficit late, late spring, but we've been lucky. So a lot of times in the bar, I have people that come in and they always have their laptop doing things. Some people are doing watching their investments and other people are actually doing their work. One of our uh, regulars comes in and he's a coder and all he does is code. And you may have heard of him before. Uh, I don't. He doesn't listen to many podcasts. He watches things. I, I remember one one time recently, I I told him about a show he watched, a show I watched, and he said to me, uh, "I don't watch a lot of TV." And I said, "Well, it's not TV, but I notice you're here, and I can see your laptop, and I know you watch at least portions of movies." You're watching portions of reaction videos, movies, and stuff when you're not doing coding. But a lot of people who aren't business people pretend to have business meetings or lunch meetings or dinner meetings. And it's very interesting. Now, I worked in manufacturing. I did sales in manufacturing. I worked in a software business. I worked uh, for a government agency. And I've been to many different working lunches. Working lunches is when they discuss ideas. You know, you got to eat lunch and you figure you can get things done, right? So I've done a whole bunch of those in different types of environment. So what, what do people think of business lunch? People that aren't accustomed to it, what they think they are, they sit down, they have their paper, they have uh, maybe a notebook or a laptop, and they pretend they're having a business meeting. And there's tons of people like that. I see it all the time. Down here, there's a lot of those um, trust fund. They call them trust fund babies down here. I'm sure it's called the same thing there. They they live off a trust account, and they always have some project. And sometimes it could be a project with their house. It could be a project with their kids. It's, it's some project. It could be they're doing some landscaping. They're getting some plants. They're interviewing some contractor and all that stuff. But mainly, it's just a way to appear useful. Because they really don't do, do much. And some people are fine with that. You know, as long as they're not asking that existential question, why am I here? A lot of times it's just to, you know, drink and make an ass of yourself for some people. Other people say, well, I have a purpose. I, I work here. I do this. I do that. Maybe they volunteer. You know, you get a lot of stay-at-home spouses. 
increasingly both of both sexes. Originally, it was just women when they didn't have to worry about childcare, meaning they had governesses and people at home to watch their kids. They're out doing their volunteer work. It gives them a little purpose, stuff like that. Guys do it all the time. They have their tea parties. You have women. Uh, I, I, I end up doing this with women, but guys do it too. They got their fraternal organizations and things like that, Moose Club and service organizations and that. And a lot of them do provide real value for their volunteerism, real value. Like the Shriners, the Shriners Hospitals, uh, the Rotary. I always thought the Rotary did great job but when you have to really stretch for purpose that means you know you're not in your regular life really not doing much right you go to someone you go with someone you have your notebook i mean notebook who does notebook anymore i mean i write things down for the show because it's more of my creative outlook i put on the topics there and he said jim you can pretty much write it on your phone but this way i don't You know, when the phone rings, I don't have to worry about it. I can actually put it on my laptop and just have the ideas bullet pointed there. Right? I don't have to really have to write things down. I understand writing is, is I think for creativity, writing is it's the way I think. But I can also, I've also done the things where I've written in a Word document and printed up the Word document. But... I always think when I look at my handwriting in this way, I can tell what kind of state of mind I was in when I was writing. It was frenetic or not. So I don't, I, I've done the pretend busy thing before where I've gone out and I had my notebook and my small laptop or Chromebook and did things that I was planning on and this is what I do. And all that. And I guess if I'm doing it for the podcast, it is a business thing. Even though it's not, I'm not paid a lot of money, but it's getting more and more so. It's getting more and more so like a business. So every time I do it, I try, I'm trying to reinvigorate the creative process for myself. So I always think about those things. I say, why, what gives people purpose? What do they do? I like diversity myself. Diversity in what I do. Tomorrow I do, I start again doing my spin classes at the gym. Uh, that, that'll that be interesting. And I do, I'll do probably do a podcast tomorrow too. I'm on my way to 500, the 500th episode. And, you know, I have decisions to make whether I'm going to do an affiliate marketing program with the hosting service I currently have, which is Spreaker, or not do it depending on what they consider. Because I don't want to, this is the thing, the broadcasting service I use or podcasting service is Spreaker. They also have a listening service. It's not nowhere, it's nowhere in the same league as Spotify or Apple or anything like that. But it's up there. And they also have it, you know, people can apply for it and listen to podcasts on the thing. Well, I worry about if I do the endorsements inside a show that maybe Spotify and iTunes would be reluctant to promote the show. And whether the compensation, why why would I be trying to get listeners on a 
service that doesn't have that type, that, you know, that that reach, audience reach. But there could be things where they go and push it, make it more so and stuff like that. So I'm thinking, you know, but some people automatically jump at the money and stuff like that. But I'll get back to that thing about people pretending to be busy. And you see it at work. You got the people that are busy work. They do things they want to do. Like people like doing their side work when they don't want to wash tables. I've seen people come in to the restaurant and they just do side work. And I'm like, hey, we got people we got to serve. Yes, side work has to be done, but we got to do it. You know, you got to be able to take people coming in and do side work. Take people come in, do side work. You know, because at the end of the night, it's got to be done again. So just stay on top of it. Another thing to contemplate, I was contemplating today, because we did speak about this multiple times, but the transition, the economy is transitioning. And if you think how it transitioned over hundreds of years, over hundreds of years, we went from like a home-based industry economy where most of the things were built either by the person, if you have a, a house, let's say a, a cottage, in your peasant in the 1500s, late Middle Ages in England. Most of the things you come in contact with are things you've created yourself. You bought, I mean, you, you've chopped down the wood, you've done, you stretched the animal skin over your window to get the covering. If you're lucky enough to own glass, you might have glass in there, who knows. But you're, if you have food on the table, a lot of times you grew it. We had, and you, if you had a meager amount of meat, you raised it. The clothing was maybe spun or sewn by you. But as time went on, the late 1600s, early 1700s through the 1700s, industrialization increased. More things were made outside the home-based industries. A lot of them were home-based other places, but you may have bought. You may have bought the clothing. You bought the shoes. The shoes were, shoemaker was an early thing where it was outside the house. People were specializing in shoes. Right? And then you had belts, because originally it was rope and robes. And then you had specialty undergarments being made, then hosiery, then hats. And the more specialty items that came around, the more things moved around. Like if you made a weapon, a lot of most people made, they came from craftsmen. Craftsmen made your eating, your plates, your utensils. And more and more things were made outside the house, but it was made in one place. Yeah, you can get the raw materials from other places and stuff like that, from indigo from the Far East, so you can dye your your uh, fabrics. You know, you got silks, and uh, usually silks are probably for wealthier people, upper class merchants, and, and things like that. Cotton from the from Egypt. All this stuff started coming in, and more and more things were moved out of the house and moved. Then people started making factories. You had big mills. 1800 saw the creation of steel, the steel industry. Iron went to steel. 
And then more and more items were shipped out. But they were still pretty much made in one place. Right? So when you had a tool made, it was usually made in the same factory. One place. You know, they made the hammer. They made the handle. Or they shaped the handle. Same thing with screwdrivers. Tongs. Whatever. It was pretty much made. And then as time went on, things were went more complicated as you went through the craftsman phase where people saw the beginning the using the raw material and then going out the door. Then they started farming out pieces of the equipment. And they weren't all made. You know, the first wagons probably were all made in, in-house and stuff like that. But then people saying, well, I'm going to order the axle from this place. You know? The, the the wheel from this place. The bed is made in-house for a wagon. And the same thing happened with vehicles and stuff like that. Well, the first Model A or Model T, right? When Henry Ford streamlined and supersized the um, assembly line. A lot of things were still being made in-house, but then the transition occurred where they started making them in different places, different components. As systems got more complex, they realized, we don't need to make all those things. And then you have electronics come out. People made vacuum tubes, and then people made the housing for for radios, later televisions. And different things were made at different places, and you'd buy the parts and assemble them. They weren't all made in one place until we arrive at today where your vehicle could be assembled in one place, but all the parts come from so many numerous countries around the world that are contributing, right? Same thing comes with the products we buy. They come from all over the world. You can look right in your cabinet right now. If you really want to get a little homework right now and see how difficult some things are to make, well, you can go no further than think about the precious metals you're wearing in your rings. They're hard to come by. Or just think of pure vanilla extract. Just the cultivation of vanilla and the labor intensity of extracting it. It's very expensive. Pure vanilla is very expensive. People don't even think about it. Vanilla beans and all that stuff. It is it is very, very expensive process to, to make that. And now you can think of your cell phones, the microchips that go into it, all these things that go into assembly. And they're able to do it. They farm out the work. They get these things made. People say, well, we're going to make 100,000 of these cell phones, 10 million of these cell phones, 50 million of these cell phones. I need this many parts, this many covers, this many screens. So when we order things, Nowadays, because of COVID changing and there's another transformation occurring where we're not getting things from brick and mortar sites, we're getting them online. And that was hastened by the pandemic. 
these things you you might not be all together and you say, well, where are they coming from? They come from all different places. Sometimes they come directly from whoever is the the seller of it. Amazon isn't necessarily the seller. Sometimes they ship they're the hosting service that displays the product. And other times they have that item on hand at a warehouse. And most of it most of those products come from about the west side of the United States, on the west side of the uh, Mississippi. And there's huge, huge fulfillment centers. And you have people working in there, very intensely working in there. Uh, at one time, there were supposed to be uh, uh, people that are pickers in those big million square foot warehouses, million square foot warehouses. They uh, do it on foot. They were pickers for fulfillment orders. They get these orders come through. They're supposed to get 170 items in an hour. And that works about three items a minute. And they could be as different as a dildo and a microphone or a Frisbee or toenail clippers or hairnets. And what they do is they intersperse the items throughout the warehouse thinking they use artificial intelligence or machine learning to set up a protocol for loading that would be most efficient. Now, the thing they don't really do well is handle the humans because they make the usually the lower shift is around 10 and a half hours. And you have to do that 170 items. And if they have a quota for amount of time, you have to do, do it. And they have these scanning guns they give you when you get the item and you put it in whatever box that you're supposed to put it in and it, they gather together they send it all down the line at the same time they send the order out at the same time and usually they pick the um, right size box and you're supposed to put all the items in that box and it's optimized for that and I find it so interesting and also dehumanizing at the same time because sometimes these people go to these boxes where they get these bins and there's a bunch of different stuff in the bins it's not just all dildos. It could be a dildo, um, a race car eraser, meaning it doesn't erase race cars, but it's a pencil eraser that's shaped like a race car. It could be a silver statue and all these different items in there. And they say, but it's in this box and you're supposed to scan it. And if you can't find it in that box, the scanner assumes that you're, you're not doing your job correctly. And I'll ask you to rescan every item in the box to make sure that they have it right. So that way they can just detail that that item is not in that box and they'll never send anybody else there until it's resupplied with the item that's supposed to be in there. But we don't know when we order these things. I, I'm waiting for a cell phone with uh, the protective glass cover and the plastic, uh, clear plastic case around it to arrive today. And they're all arriving at the same time, even though they weren't all ready to go because they could have shipped it out. I ordered it, was it today's Wednesday? I ordered it on Friday. And it shipped out on 
Monday, Monday night. So, or Tuesday, I think it was it from the Miami Fulfillment Center. It could have came from the, it shows that shipped or something like that. But I don't, I don't know. And I do care. I care about how people work about, you know, how they, how they feel about their work. And it seems awfully brutal, awfully brutal. In retail, you know, if you think about it, retail, you had a lot of other things. You had things on display and you had to have a salesperson to ring it up and things like that. With Amazon, they don't have a person ringing up. You're, ring, you're, the, you're the cashier. Now, they're the clerks. These fulfillment people and delivery people are the clerks. And it's much more efficient. They're just loading these things into it. There was originally Best Buy was like that. I think it was. And that's amazing that Best Buy's still around. This was a store, I recall, one of the chain was in my neighborhood in Philadelphia. And what they would have is they would just have display items throughout the store. They have one t- one type of, well, I mean, they have multiple toasters, but they have one type of that toaster out. And then they give you, you had little bits of paper and they had a, the 10 spots on it. And you could order, what you do is you write down the 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 part number or the item number on the paper, you walk up to the order fulfillment center and you go and you give it to the person at the uh, counter and they give it to someone who would start picking the order. And then you just ring it up and then you bring it to you. So this way they didn't have to restock their shelves. They already have their shelves stocked. And they just did it. And this was over... 40 years ago. We have 40, 40 something years ago. It was a great, it was a great system at the time. I don't understand how they couldn't transition, much like I said about Sears that had the warehouses. They did a, a catalog that might as well be online, right? Because originally the last catalog, I imagine they designed the last catalog on a computer. All they had to do was make those pages into computer you know pages and and they would just they had pictures of the items they scanned everything in they Sears was so ready and Best Buy was ready for it too because each of their stores was a fulfillment center and sometimes you had to wait a half hour because they couldn't find it in a half hour or 45 minutes now sometimes with Amazon depending on where their regional warehouses are depending on the items and stuff like that you get this the order in the same day well you can't beat that remember how many stores whenever you go to a, a parts store or a hardware store when i say parts store auto parts store and you sound we don't have it but we can order it and get it in in a day or two well i can get you can get a day or two the way it is now right just ordering it straight out and that's where the change is occurring, but you don't see the people hustling in the background, ordering, you know, the, the items are made in whatever God-forsaking sweatshop, and then it makes its way to you some magical way. And you think, wow, they're very good at that. And sometimes you're very mad, you're very upset, very mad, very upset when you don't get the item, when it's waiting a couple of days. Well, that's supply and demand. If they have it, they'll ship it. A lot of times they aren't. A lot of times they're catching up because the item got real 
busy. Look at what happened with chlorine. Chlorine's short supply. So many people got small pools, inflatable pools, all different types of pools. But chlorine is short, short supply. As well as toilet paper and all that stuff when it first happened. So I'm going to take a little break right now and I'm going to come right back. I just want to check on a a couple things. I'll be right back, folks. Okay, and we're back. I turned down that music. Our microphone's still hot. Let's. Uh, oh yeah, but while I was talking about the fulfillment center and stuff like that, I just got my shipment in. Let's see what happened. Let's see what happened. Phone. Uh, okay, I got the covering, glass covering. Let's see what it looks like. Would they give me five of these? From China, five pack. Got the clear plastic case, the mobile case, and let's see. Oh, a deceptively smaller bag for the cell phone. Let's see what that looks like. I give you obviously give you a new charger, two new chargers. I don't get this one. Oh. Wow, they sent an adapter plug for, I wonder, wait, I wonder what the hell that's all about, because they sent me a regular plug, an adapter plug, and let's see the cell phone, I'm going to have to plug this in, okay, oh, it's in a new case, contact carrier to register me. No service. GMS only. Not Verizon Sprint. Yeah. Read. Please use dummy IMEI below if only your carrier does not accept IMI. Let's see. What is... Let's see what happens. Yep. Boy, it's a nice box. You know, it's really hard to uh, not open something you receive, right? Yeah, I said it said I had to have a 5G. And look, let me see. Oh, there's already a plastic case on it. Well, I got two plastic cases. What the hell? Big screen. Looks like it's pretty much charged up. See what happens. Do I really want to mess around with this thing right now? Yep. Start. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have to get involved with it. I'm going to charge this sucker up. Power off. Yeah. I don't need to get involved with this stuff right now. I'll do it later because I'm doing, I'm with you guys. I'm not with someone else. So here we are. I got all these things delivered at the same time. With 
I really don't understand what that little adapter plug. What the hell is with that? Oh wait. It's an adapter for if someone brought a European chart. I don't get I don't get this. Huh. So it's if someone's coming over here, they could put their screw you know. I was going to say screwed up European plug in there. No. Okay. Well, I want to finish up with niche niche sports. And what is a niche sport? There are things that I would cont- um This is my definition. A very small population or percentage of population plays. Now, if you're a country the size of China or India, and that's the major thing like... Field hockey is a niche sport in the United States, but it's a big deal in India. They play it there. They also play something called shinty in Scotland and Ireland, and it's field hockey that involves tackling shoulder to shoulder, and you can use your stick to, you know, to tackle someone or block somebody, which is different from field hockey. So a niche sport, I'll give you an example. There is equestrian or show riding, and that's a niche sport. Uh, America Cup sailing, because there's only a certain amount of people that can do it. I mean, you can you can be a person that handle the winches and all that stuff, but there's only certain people that know how to run those sailing yachts. High lie. South American Caribbean phenomenon, South and Central America, um, fencing. That's I'd have to say that's one. Drag racing. Christ, who's this? Oh, Tavernier. I'm going to put in a pause to see what this is all about. I'll be right back. Okay, we're back. That was my daughter calling me, telling me that she had. It's her end-of-the-year free day where they do their sports. Oh, wait. Here she goes. She sent me a message. And dodgeball, which is another niche sport. And I have to call it... Uh, there are niche sports that it's that are accessible, like frisbee, froth. It's not that hard to get involved in that. But these other ones, drag racing, NASCAR... Fencing. I mean, you can grab, yeah, you can make a a fencing sword maybe out of an old car antenna. But it's usually for the upper class. It's like the whole Winter Olympics was a niche sport thing, if you think about it. Figure skating. How many people had time for figure skating? You had to spend a lot of time doing it. It it, Your parents had to have enough resources to schedule you time on ice. And... Hockey was a lot like that, unless you grew up in a, like Canada or Sweden or Russia, where you could spend eight months on the ice or you know six months on the ice of the year. But these other sports, you know, NASCAR, you have a feeder system. Yeah, they have a minor league system. They have the races on Fridays or Saturdays. But the feeder systems, you have to have money. You have to have an endorser in order to race. And not everyone's exposed to it. They, like t- 
tennis and swimming and bowling and ping pong. I mean, even bowling, you have to be near a bowling alley. But soccer, basketball, soccer, you just need the ball, really. Uh, Basketball, you need the ball and a hoop, right? Football, football, you could use equipment and stuff like that. But, you know, to play it real the way it's supposed to be, track and field, sneakers, some of the equipment like a javelin or a shot put, which is kind of niche but it's not that hard. You just get a rock that weighs eight pounds and you pretty much, you know, that's it. Even gymnastics has a feeder system. But equestrian, you got you need to be on the horse and all that stuff. That's, they pretend, they pretend that they, they, they ski jump. How many people in their life have ski Ski jump. Yeah, it's a thrill sport and stuff like that. You can go and do it. It does show that you're you're dumb enough to go off a high jump on skis and land on a slippery surface. That takes some skill. But when you think about it, how many people in the world, when they show the guy the greatest long jumper in history, ski long jumper, well, how many people have ever skied off a long jump? What percentage of their population? If you go into a place like Finland, let's say there are 8 million people, maybe 10,000 of them, a little little better than that, one in a thousand have, have done it. Well, maybe there's more. Maybe there's maybe 50,000 people. It's still a couple, one out of a couple hundred. How many people have kicked a football or a, a soccer ball or hit a baseball? Baseball, it's not that hard. But And then these other ones for kids, they're just looking for an ability to be able to do uh, cup stacking. You'd see that on Facebook a lot. Not Facebook, on YouTube. And they actually have a league. It's called the, the Governing Association. It's called the World's Sport Stacking Association. And it was created, created uh, cup stacking was created in 1981. Oceanside, California, and it's listed in the Guinness World Records as something is 2015, something was done, something, something. And what it's described as cup stack is nine or 12 specially designed cups are stacked in a predetermined sequence as fast as possible. And they have relays, single, and all this stuff. And They'll just come up with a design and say, you have to restack these cups this way. And obviously, the people that really excel at that right now, and I'm not stereotyping, it's just a fact, uh, are Koreans and Malaysians. Much like ping pong, right? Takes precision, takes time. It's not really a sport, stacking cups. It's like you're searching for something. You know, that person really knows how to stack cups or make ice cubes or bartending the bartending olympics you know carrying glasses making drinks all this shit i mean even that is somewhat of a skill but who's you know who's better at this than that you know it's the drink has to be presentable you have to be there's more to come more that comes into being a bartender than just making 20 drinks really fast. You should be quick and you should be somewhat entertaining and somewhat congenial. 
But being able to make 30 drinks in two minutes, well, that's great. But when you have to talk to someone, sometimes people don't make the grade. They don't medal in that competition. So today was a really good day. I have, what, four, you know, counting the one split show, there's four shows. Uh, it's raining like a mother right now. But just remember all you cup stackers up there. There's always something you're going to be good at. I mean, they, they always have that stuff for, the, you know, kids. The, the third, the, uh, you know, the untitled Lord. The, the, um, meaning in that, you know, when you always have the aristocratic family, you had the second and third sons, right? The first son would always they'd be the Lord of the manor. And the second and third would just be carrying the thing. They'd have to do something. They'd have to be an attorney or a doctor or do something. A medical, um, a military man. You know, that's what they did during the Summer Olympics, I, I guess, the, when they had, or the Winter Olympics, you had the um, pentathlon where you ski and shoot. And what the fuck, who... What what group of thing where people go and say, well, I like skiing and I like shooting. Cross-country skiing, which is already kind of cross-country skiing. It's bordering on a niche sport. And then you throw in target shooting with that. It gets even nichier. You're just finding things to do, you know. Uh, they had it on the, if you, for the older listeners, on Monty Python... Flying circuits, they used to have the Geek Olympics. Oh, speaking of Olympics, the in the AAU Junior Olympics Games, cup stacking is an event. Yep, cup stacking is an event. But on the on Monty Python's Flying Circus, they had one of their episodes, they had the Geek Olympics, or I think they called them Geek Olympics, and it was wealthy guys uh, trying to do things like unhook a woman's bra, get in a car, jump over a uh, a stack of or a row of match boxes and oh one and the final thing was to shoot yourself in the head and only one person was able to accomplish that okay I'm going to sign off I'll talk to you later wife's calling talk to you later thank you very much I'm going to sign off with the music let's get the music on okay pause bye <laughs>